I'm Dean Newland, and welcome to the Business of Intuition, where I coach, facilitate, train, and speak on the hard science and meaningful experience of intuitive leadership in business, so you can make better decisions, forge real connections, and creatively solve problems to amplify your impact and simplify your life. Welcome to the Business of Intuition. If you walk around break rooms in many companies these days, you'll see messages encouraging employees to adopt a growth mindset. As the term implies, this mantra is all about expanding the services and products into the marketplace by adopting a can-do attitude. My next guest is promoting a new mindset made even more important by the COVID-19 crisis. Dr. Adkar Badshaw is the chief catalyst at Catalytic Innovators Group, where he advises individuals and organizations to catalyze their social and philanthropic investments. He is a seasoned executive with over 30 years experience in international development and managing corporate philanthropic programs, and he also teaches at the University of Washington. In his new book, Purpose Mindset, How Microsoft Inspires Its Employees and Alumni to Change the World, Adkar explains why, now maybe more than ever, companies need to focus on empathy and service to employees and the community, a focus toward a purpose mindset. He also explains how his own intuition has guided him throughout his career. A purpose mindset also, as we know, encourages intuition. And I suspect as we adopt a mindset towards purpose, we will see employees use their power of intuition in how they approach their work and their relationships. So, Akhtar, as you know, there are companies right now in the United States, uh, some of them are requiring people to come back to work, some are not. Some are making very strong, bold statements about equality, and some are not. And it seems, at least in my travels and talking to clients, that companies and individuals in particular are beginning to reassess what work is going to look like in the future. It's not going to necessarily be what it was like back in, in January. And, and with that reassessment, some people are beginning to question, are they in the right place? Do I need to, at some point, look for a different kind of uh, work engagement? And I know that you've had a varied career. You've been in education and then you went into corporate philanthropy and now you're back in education. Can you speak to uh, your career path? And, and, and if there is a tie-in, how did, how did your gut sense help you through all that? Because one would say, just keep doing the corporate ladder, keep doing what would be expected, but you've sort of taken a couple of jogs on your path. What's that been about? And can you kind of share that with us? Yeah. So as a kid, you always have some sort of a dream of what you want to be when you grow up. And for some people, it turns out and for other people, it does not. I wanted to be a nuclear physicist and I sucked at physics. So, you know, I wanted to create nuclear bombs and that really didn't pan out. So I went into architecture, wanted to be a great architect with turtleneck and round glasses and be the one that was designing massive buildings and you know being talking in funny terms but i got admitted at mit went and studied architecture and i got an opportunity at that time with the dean of the school to work with him 
to create a new program called Design for Islamic Societies. And that got me off the practice track of architecture into the education track of architecture. And I basically just looked at the fact that here is the dean asking me to help him design a new program. That sounded cool. Why not do that? Then go look for a job as a practicing architect. So it's just basically recognizing that here is an opportunity, let me seize it. Mm. And let's see where it goes. And I spent 10 terrific years at MIT, traveling around the world with a well-endowed program on Islamic architecture. An opportunity came my way in 93 with some friends and colleagues from the UN that said, ah, you're wasting your time at MIT, come and help, help us start a new nonprofit, which was focused on cities and large cities. And that kind of became a interesting effort for me, which brought me into the nonprofit sector. Of course, not everybody has the resources to suddenly just quit something and go somewhere else. I, it just so happened that my wife had just accepted a job at Microsoft in New York, New Jersey. This was an opportunity in New York. So things lined up for me to be able to make that shift from an academic career into the nonprofit career. My wife moved to Seattle with her job at Microsoft. I moved here, started another nonprofit. And I was doing pretty well in that nonprofit. And then Microsoft came calling and said, run our philanthropy team. So the question though is in this time of uncertainty, where every one of us is rethinking work, we should have done previously, but never did. But now we've been forced to do so simply because our work for most of us, not all of us, for many of us, is from home. And that difference between work and home has disappeared. Mm. And even for those that have got challenged in their work environments because those places are shut, they are having the opportunity to, to rethink what work actually means. So now we are really looking at it and seeing that this is not separate from our life. I just don't wake up and go to work and then shut down and come home and do some completely different things. And that's what is getting people to rethink what does work look like? And is this really what I want to do? And in that regard then, because I'm looking at your background a bit and you've shared a little bit, you've done nonprofit, which is so focused on mission. You've got a book out that's coming up in November, I think, that, um, and I want to hear more about regarding purpose. You mentioned purpose in the title. Are we now being forced to reassess what our purpose is? So I think historically, you know, people have always looked at purpose. 
I mean, there is Aaron Hurst in his book, The Purpose Economy kind of splits people into three categories. Those that are driven by purpose, those that are driven by wealth, and those that are driven by status. And by the way, none of this is wrong. People who are driven by status may have actually come out of an environment where they feel to be secure, they should get a position with the title. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to be X. People who are focused on money may have come out of a environment where they feel that by just getting financial stability, they might be good. Others come out and say, I only want to do things that have purpose in life. And all of them come together in the workforce. But there are secondary drivers. So even if I am motivated by money or status, my secondary driver might still be purpose, which might not get ignited. And if companies start providing opportunities to ignite that, then your work becomes far more valuable because it is now driven through two traits and purpose becomes a driving force. So that's the piece that I'm working, that I have worked on, on my book called The Purpose Mindset, where I believe that up till now, our business world has got us to focus on the growth mindset. And look, we all need a growth mindset, right? Actually, in some ways, a fixed mindset is the most happiest folks. So I say, I'm happy. I don't need to worry about anything else. Growth mindset with Carol Dweck talks about how people should are constantly learning, constantly challenging themselves, picking them up, you know, not getting overburdened by failure. But to a large extent, growth mindset is either in the service of yourself or in the service of the company. The purpose mindset moves you from the service of the company and yourself into the service of the community mm. and extending the common good. And that's the difference. And that's the trajectory where a lot of people today are waking up and saying, what is my purpose in life? What am I waking up every day to do? Am I making a difference in what I do? And whatever that may be, you may be a barista serving coffee. But if you have purpose, you actually do a fantastic job serving coffee and making the customer feel really good. And Starbucks tries to instill that by creating the environment at Starbucks as the third room, which is the extension of your house and your office. I love this focus of moving from growth to purpose mindset. My question is, is there uh, within that a individual purpose that needs to align to the purpose of the organization or can they live separately? And in many cases, they live separately, right? But the opportunity is that, is your company giving you the opportunity to do both? So I'll give you an example. Mm. <clears throat> in my book, I 
interview people from Microsoft, which is what the book is focused on. And many of the folks feel that, you know, a lot of my job is just work. I'm out there selling stuff. I'm, I have to generate revenue. But because the company gives me the opportunity to volunteer, it matches my time. It actually matches my donations. It allows me to do certain things out in the community that reignites my ability to come back and do more work for the company. Because I am out there in the community, the company is recognizing that I can go volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club, or I can go volunteer in my kid's school, or I can, and it actually helps me do that. And doing that nourishes my soul, and I then want to come and do more for the company. Got it. So is there a, that, I love the idea that the purpose is then being expressed in serving the community and that reignites me to work back in the company. What if the company's purpose in addition to serving the community is about serving the client or the, or the business that it serves? Can we still have that same level of intrinsic motivation around a purpose for a company that necessarily isn't focused on the community, more focused right. on business things. Right. So, so for a large extent, you know, look, companies have to focus on business things. That's why they exist. Right. But many companies now are recognizing is that they are not separated out from the community. Their employees are part of the community. Their clients are part of the community. Their customers are part of the community. And how do you map to that, right? So are you going to be just a rent seeker as a company where you are going to extract? Or are you actually going to be a company that invests? And by investing, your company is also growing. The folks that are in the extraction work, and I don't mean literally mining, I mean just focused on their survival, in today's world are going to struggle. Because even consumers are actually figuring out that, hey, I don't need to do all of these things. And we've clearly seen with COVID, I can't survive without shopping. Right. 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 And now I'm going to be very careful on what I shop. And so com consumers and companies that actually figure out how to attract that are going to thrive. Those that don't. So, so this notion of purpose has to get embedded in the culture of the company. And then it gets extended out into how individuals build a sense of purpose and the purpose mindset so that it then has impact both on the self and on the company and the business itself. Hmm. So in the title of your book, I think the second half was how Microsoft inspires its employees and alumni to change the world. In addition to some of the things that you've already mentioned in terms of supporting community initiatives, how does Microsoft, and I mean 
let's pull them in as an example. But also I'm looking at how can other companies do what you just described? What is your model, your framework, so that we can move more towards this purpose mindset versus this growth mindset? What does a company do? Let's look at, you know, Microsoft itself, right? The first part of Microsoft in its first, as an organization, it had a vision, right? A computer on every desk, a computer in every home. And there was a purpose for everybody that was working there, kind of knew that that's what they were doing, that it was bigger than just writing code. The second half of the company was all about growth and competition and growth. And it grew dramatically as a company. But in its third leadership piece, Satya Nadella has come in and shifted that mindset in the company where it's gone from hyper-competitive to actually looking at it and say, why are we doing what are we doing? Whose service are we doing this work for? And he's introduced a whole culture of empathy and purpose. And that has shifted the trajectory of the company in just terms of both its growth, it is actually not, it's grown even faster now. You know, it's one and a half trillion dollars. It's moved into all sorts of different businesses, but it's a far different entity just because of how the same people were now given a different lens to look at the world from. Hmm. And have created a whole different environment in which they are operating. But the underlying foundation was always built on some aspects of generosity. That there was a culture of giving. And I don't mean giving in the sense of monetary, but it was that culture that got created that we will share wealth and whatever that wealth may be. And that's the difference in how you actually think about. And I think that's what companies need to discover is what is their own DNA? And then how do they operate so that consumers today want to see companies that are invested in part of the community? So is Microsoft seeing a different type of employees showing up at their doorstep, their HR departments asking for applications, so to speak, because of this new focus around purpose and empathy? Or are we seeing the same person as we have since last 20, 30 years? It's just now those people have changed, that the society has changed. I really don't have any data. So I'm just (laughs) discussing on that one. Yeah. And I may be completely wrong. Got it. I believe, though, that it is the same people that are coming in. Again, I go back to this. People are divided into thirds. Purpose, money, status. Almost equally. So suddenly companies are not suddenly getting more people with purpose. 
Now, what is happening at Microsoft is that that focus that you may be driven by status, you may be driven by money, but also put that purpose lens because we've now introduced the conversations of empathy. We are actually introducing a conversation around cooperation. We are introducing a conversation about equity. We are including a conversation around social justice. And that is then shifting how employees behave. It shifts how a manager behaves. Mm. It shifts as to how a new employee is coming in and they feel that I have the luxury to do certain things and it is not going to impact on my growth in the company. Hmm. And that is what has shifted, right? So, and that shifted from the top and it's cascading down to HR. Now, again, I mean, I don't want to paint this as a rosy picture. I'm quite sure that there are a lot of unhappy people at Microsoft also. But overall, what you're seeing is a shift in how people actually look at leadership and leadership matters. So could you give an example of what a purpose-centered leader might do differently than a growth-centered leader? So, so I mean, you need to have a growth. You, you, you can't be a fixed mindset and move into a purpose mindset. So that's the first thing. But the way you look at purpose mindset is one, you are focusing on strengths. You're discovering your strengths Hmm. and not focusing on weaknesses. Everybody has weaknesses and we're never going to solve people's weaknesses. But if we can each discover our strength and figure out how we can work with each other through those strengths, you can actually do much more good. So that's the first. Second, you shift from, you work from abundance. You actually look at it and say that there is a lot of innovative resources out there and I can make use of that to bring about the change I want to see or the impact I want to see. Look at what has happened today. Nobody thought in our wildest dreams that we would not be allowed to meet people. And that every conversation is going to be online. If we had done some sort of a plan towards that, nobody would have accepted it. But now people have figured out innovative ways of communicating, innovative ways of having parties, birthday parties, conversations, recordings, teaching. And that's suddenly we all went from a scarcity mindset that said, I don't know how to use this technology to hey, I can now use it and I can just be creative of how I use it. So that's the second. Third is moving from doing things efficiently to doing things effectively. And that's really extending the common good. Are you going to focus on doing things the right way or are you going to work on the right things? Good point. It is about igniting movements. It's no longer about an organization. It is actually building a movement that leads to societal change. Microsoft has suddenly become a movement in the cloud business. It is no longer just an organization. And 
you know, Airbnb, Uber, they all kind of looked at it and said, I'm not just a business, I'm actually a way of life. And I'm creating movements. And if you can start thinking about movements, then it's no longer the organization that is important. Hierarchy is no longer important. And that's how you start thinking about societal change. And then finally, you want to embrace empathy and compassion and move from the me into the we. Yep. And that's actually what I'm trying to talk about in my blog. Well let's, well, let's talk about that for a second. And I just wanted to, before we get into that, it sounds like it reminds me of some of the stuff that I've read in the past and, and have uh, talked about it in the past around you know, triple bottom line scorecards and being able to look at the community effect of what the uh, employees are experiencing and the bottom line and all those things need to align up and B Corp statuses. I know they became popular a while back and it sounds like it's finally come to fruition based on what you're saying. And uh, when the book comes out, I'm certainly going to want to read it. Back to your blog yeah. post. So yeah, this morning I, I was just getting ready for our interview here and I said, well, I better look into to see if you have anything uh, up and that's recent. And so going to have to address it. It says, burn your mask. The virus and pandemic is a hoax. So, of course, that's a very provocative statement. Could you explain what you wrote here for people? So, you know, when we started off with COVID-19, everybody came out and said, don't wear a mask. It's going to do nothing. And part of it was a mistake on our health folks. Part of it was they were trying to protect the availability of masks to go to professionals and healthcare professionals. But since then, we've seen that wearing a mask, a cloth mask or a disposable mask out in public or a face covering and practicing safe distancing is a way to control the spread of the pathogen. Yet the simple act of kindness and neighborliness of wearing a mask has become a political issue or a personal freedom issue or an issue of religiosity. And we in Washington state have now introduced a mandatory requirement of wearing a mask. Yet I know so many friends and others who basically believe that this is all a hoax. Come November, nobody's going to talk about wearing a mask. And that, why should I wear a mask? It is infringing on my personal rights. And both of them are absolutely nonsense. It's no longer even freedom of thought. You can think what you want. But each one of us is now a weapon. Mm. We are carrying this. And you don't know, and I don't know whether you are active or inactive in your ability to spread. And the simple face covering for a short period of time can just protect all of us. So that was the purpose of writing this blog. 
because you have all of these movements that are actually saying it is fake, it is false, there is no evidence. Yes, there is evidence. And countries in which they wore these things have, we have seen the reduction. Mm. Now I understand there is personal freedom, but where? Be creative, come up with some unique designs. You can't breathe, okay, come up with a different cloth. Go invent, don't complain. Right? People have, young kids have designed masks which were with a clear, you know, plastic on your mouth, on your lips, so that yes. those that, you know, are, need to use sign language can, can see you, right? Others are basically saying, hey, I have a breathing issue. Great, wear a face covering. Go get that little helmet that sits on top of your face like a shield. Right. I mean, it's, that's the scarcity mindset versus the abundance mindset. Yes, I have an issue, but I will solve it. I will discover my strengths versus saying, ah, it's my weakness. I'm not going to do this. Well, it ties back into your purpose and your empathy mindset perspective that if we are empathetic and if we are serving the community, wearing a mask is going to uh, be a display of that empathy to somebody else, whether you believe you have it or not. It, it, even if you know you are certain that you don't, it's, it's, a, it's a kindness expression by doing so is what I hear you say. Well, it's a neighborly thing to do. It's just the right thing to do. Got it. Understood. Hey, I want to ask you one more thing before we close up here. I, those of you who are listening to this obviously don't have the opportunity to look into your office, but I noticed over your right shoulder an absolutely beautiful painting, and I noticed in your write-up that you are an artist. Is that your work, and can you also sort of play, sort of tell us how does art play a part in your life, uh, certainly with purpose and, and with the other aspects of what you get involved with? What role does art play? So... I, and it is my work. Thank you for asking. It is. It sits behind me because the one that you can barely see is sitting on my art table. So I have my artwork behind me and I kind of go between painting, writing, teaching, talking. Sometimes it's much more integrated. Other times it's not. A couple of months ago, I finished this one with the hand that you see, which actually is it the title is anguish in the times of covid mm. and it is a person really in pain which is described there you know this actually sat on my table for two years and i didn't know what to do with it i kind of created an outline it was kind of left there and i kind of gave up on it and then i had a conversation with somebody and then Sunday, I realized what I needed to do, and I finished it over the weekend. So, you know, I have canvases sitting around, my paint sit around, and when I get into this, and this, you know, it's like everybody has their own ways of finding comfort. For mm. me, art has always been a way in which I found ways to express myself. Some days I do more art, some days I do more talking. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I find that I don't uh, dabble right now in art per se. I do write and journal, and uh, I, I try to run every day at this beautiful place around the river up here in Bend, Oregon. And that seems to be my refuge and my ability to reground, but I often come up with these business ideas or 
other concepts somewhere in the space of one or two miles in. And I'm sure that others can relate to that as well, that these all integrate, these all kind of create ideas and, and also help us through this difficult time. Akhtar, how, how can people connect with you in the future? And tell us more about when your book is coming out. You know, I'm on social media. Twitter is Akhtar Bad. You know, I'm on Facebook, Akhtar Bacha, LinkedIn. You know, you can connect with me on any of those three mediums. Uh, you can, you know, I mean, I'm, you can Google me or search me on MSN and, you know, I'm there. I'm not a hidden person. My book is available on Amazon. You can pre-order it. It comes out in November. I have just got the typeset version and all of the folks that are interviewed are now coming back with minor changes as to some of the words <laughs> that I've used or attributed to them. And, you know, I have interviewed Bill Gates and Satya Nadella and Brad Smith and some very senior executives and former executives of Microsoft. So I want to make sure that I'm not misquoting or putting words in anybody's mouth. Right. But again, the book is called Purpose Mindset, How Microsoft Inspires Its Employees and Alumni to Change the World. That is correct. And That's great. Published by HarperCollins Leadership Series. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and keep up the great work. Thank you. I do appreciate it. And thank you for the opportunity, Dean. You bet. Thank you for listening to The Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com. Dot com.